welcome back to the next Quantum Divide. I'm very lucky to be joined by Andrew Lord from BT. Andrew, I um, your surname. I, I feel compelled to call you sir. I know it's not necessary, but <laughs> I was sure. called. You know when they take the register at school when you're a child and they read out your surname first. So I was Lord Andrew, and every <laughs> single class teacher thought this was hilarious, and the whole class did. So every year, lots of laughter, and I, I think it's marked me psychologically for life. Lord Andrew, I am not a lord. <laughs> okay, but if I call you Lord Andrew during the call by accident, then you know why now. Um, listen, I, I, we were, we've only met recently, but from what I can tell, you're a bit of a stalwart uh, legend of the UK optical and quantum industry. Um, you're, you're senior manager of optical research at BT, you're a BT distinguished engineer, you're a fellow of the IEEE, and uh, you also edit one of their journals, uh, or, or a journal of some sort, which we can come on to. But welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. And why don't you start with a bit of a information on your background, how you got into optical technology and, and then quantum? Yeah, sure. I graduated from Oxford University in 1985 in physics. I asked my tutor, what do you think I should do? And I remember him saying, I hear BT is getting interested in fibre. And so I thought, okay, may as well. So I applied to BT and ended up in a job working with the subsea area. So at the time in the 80s and 90s, it, it was just telephony. Okay, there were no internet or anything like that the question the challenge was how do you get telephony across the sea across the atlantic and the pacific and so a lot of activity around there for the next 10 years or so and then the internet kind of made all of that transmission technology relevant to terrestrial networks so every all the learning that had gone on in the industry to, to make very long span subsea system suddenly started becoming useful to build in-country networks around the uk and, and other places and so that was really fueling the next the next few years or so and then I, I think probably what happened next was the amount of demand for data and capacity coming into optical fibers was requiring wdm so multiple colors of light on the same fiber and, and the wdm revolution really fueled everything from about 2000 till about uh, 2010 um, and then that started to run out of steam uh, and i basically have followed all of this uh, development um, and in 2010 uh, ish, there was a big coherent revolution where instead of um, switching lasers on and off, uh, it, it became phase modulation and, and, and that gave a huge improvement in the amount of capacity you could put onto optical fibres, largely because of the compensation you could get from electronics. So that's basically where we are now. We've gone from 2010 to current day on this coherent wave, a very high capacity system that I've essentially followed the entire process from 85 and to the current date. Great. Yeah, without fibre optics, I think, frankly speaking, the, the internet couldn't have scaled as quickly as it has. So it's probably been an interesting journey for you, being right from the beginning of that, pretty much. So you're now at BT, uh, Manager of Optical Research. What, what does that mean? Do you have a team of people working for you? What kind of stuff are you working on at the moment? Yeah, I spent my, until about 2010-ish working, not in the research side, but in more in designing networks for BT. I then moved to research and built a team of 10 people to essentially, look slightly longer term, look at the new optical technologies that are, could be relevant to BT. We have, so 10 people focused on anything from optical access, so PON, systems to people's homes, to metro and core networks, for, so fibre going around the country, not so much subsea anymore. And then this other kind of associated activities. So, for example, 
can I do fiber sensing on optical fiber? Uh, how do I monitor the huge amount of data that's available? Can I use AI and machine learning to improve the performance of my networks? And of course, quantum, which around 2013 started to emerge as a potential use for the, essentially the large fiber infrastructure that BT has. Sensing one's an interesting one. I've Ooh. seen optical fiber can be used to measure vibration and stress and things. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. Are you using that somewhere or is that something you looked at at some point? Yeah, I can't talk in too much detail because it's some of it is sensitive, literally, as well as commercially. Yeah. But, but yes, and I think we're not the only ones. I think generally the industry is looking to find other ways to make get revenue from their fibre infrastructure. It's not just carrying bits. It can also sense under the ground things that are happening to critical infrastructure, and, and we should try to use that. Fibre is incredibly sensitive, and, and there are a whole range of systems from ranging from DAS, acoustic sensing, so putting acoustic signals over a fibre and looking for reflections, all the way to actually using what we have already. So these coherent systems that I talked about a minute ago have a side benefit where the this phase modulation, you, you can look at the detection of the phase and infer something that, that's changing in the fibre as a result. It, so long as you tap into it the right way, you, you can actually get a lot of information from what we're building already. So I think, yeah, I think sensing is, has got a way to go and, and could be a, a big thing for... BT and and companies that have a similar large national infrastructure. Sensing, I think, is a little bit like quantum, and it's very delicate, right? It's using the capabilities of the fibre in a very precise way. That leads me nicely on to to quantum. So you said you started getting involved in BT in 2013 there, maybe looking into what was the answer that possible. What's your involvement in quantum in BT, and, and what are the... What are the links to the optical domain for you? No, BT goes back a long way. In 1994, we actually uh, apparently <laughs> had a quantum team that was filing patents on uh, QKD, quantum key distribution over PON systems. Um, those patents have, have timed out since then, um, but very early activities. But then uh, it was too early. Um, back in 2013, we reignited our interest, partly because there was government funding at the time initiated through the quantum comms hubs and other hubs but particularly for us there was a, a quantum communications hub were government funded based around york university as well as other unis like cambridge and others and we just got involved as, as an um, on the advisory board etc and that was a, a logical thing to do to start to build an early understanding of what these things were capable of but at the same time we also got involved with toshiba looking at how to build proof of concept demonstrations of their early QKD technology over our installed fibre. And with that, we introduced them to Adva, a company now known as Adtran, who were making for BT Ethernet systems. So so Adva would would deliver Ethernet for for BT's customers. And and my logical question at the time was, if QKD is, is an incredibly secure a communications technique can I combine it with ethernet and, and actually uh, actually make use of it so that, that was the the 2013 ask uh, and it was our kind of baptism into the whole area of quantum I guess is there a, a strategy for quantum that BT has at a higher level because of course QKD is only a small, a small part of quantum technology as a whole just wondering taking a quick step back looking at, at the high level for a minute so yeah BT has installed a quantum program 
it's managed by a program manager who oversees the, the whole of quantum activities ranging from commercialization to research. Then I'm responsible for a fair amount of that. But there are commercial people involved, there's planners and installers. So, so really, it's tucking on dozens of people across the business, ranging from putting some fibre in, installing some equipment, to, to very long-term research on quantum computers, quantum sensing, and the next generation quantum comms. But yeah, it, it does have this overarching programme that, that oversees it all. Very nice. Yeah, thank you. I, I did my homework and researched uh, Lord Andrew a little bit before uh, for, uh, this, this episode. And uh, yeah, I've seen, obviously, you're, you're very active in the UK quantum scene. To name a few, um, you're involved in the IET, UK Quantum, the IEEE, uh, UK Research Institute. And there's a project I came across, AirQKD, for example. Uh-huh. I guess, yeah, it'd be good to hear the thread of the story through all of those and how you got involved and what drives you to... Uh, work with these institutes so closely yeah it's a really good question so it's a balance i have a team of 10 but they're not all quantum experts it's probably two or three focused on quantum and we do all these other things as well so there's a resource limit to how much we could do ourselves and it doesn't make sense for us to do everything and there's i believe in the uk a very strong ecosystem especially down to the university level we're very lucky in the uk to have that resource so let's make use of it and i have the potential to have multiple PhD students. Uh, I have five or six at the moment, not all in quantum, but scattered around universities like um, Cambridge, UCL, uh, Bristol, uh, Glasgow, um, Southampton. Uh, might have missed one, but, but essentially these, these students give us a, a way to spread our wings and to tap into uh, the, the fantastic university capabilities. And then um, Innovate UK have, have been a very important part of um, the government's um, uh, development of quantum as, as a technology coming out of universities and, and funding startups and getting an ecosystem going, if you like, from, from scratch, really. And, and I think that's what happened in 2013, that essentially you started to see Innovate UK funded projects convince or enable ideas from universities to spin out and, and start to build very fledgling companies at the time. And we've taken the attitude that we would like to work with them, best in class at least, because it gives us like another string to our bow. It gives us a means to to help support, to give requirements and to encourage what is still a weak UK quantum industry, but getting stronger. And it means that we can, at the grassroots, really play in that space uh, and, and make sure that the developments are going in the right direction for the UK in terms of standards. Uh, but particularly in terms of what BT might require in the future. So it's a balance and we do a lot of work where we can ourselves and we file patents and protect the, the IP that we're developing. But we're very um, ecumenically minded and work with anybody, essentially, especially in the UK. Brexit has had an issue with our ability to do quantum in Europe, which is a shame. It'd be, it would be nice to think that might change in, in the coming years there's been a bit of a thaw there, I see. And so maybe we can embrace more Horizon projects in Europe because they're also very good. But it has helped us to very much focus on the UK as a the place to operate in the quantum space. And I think the last 10 years have gone really well in that regard. Yeah, you mentioned Horizon. Obviously, there was an announcement recently that we're yeah. kind of still we're back into Horizon. Yeah. What's that thawing 
like is it do you think more of a cultural thought or is it just because there was a gap where we weren't we were in limbo for a while and people weren't really sure whether uk institutes could get access to funding there had to be some kind of agreement there are plenty of associated countries that are involved in horizon that aren't fully fledged eu members yeah switzerland and israel etc so so there was always going to be i think some kind of uh, of agreement the, the issue around quantum is that whether it's included or not and and to some extent i don't think it is so, so if, if we wanted to do quantum collaborative projects in horizon that might be harder for us but in the more general for example a more general optical research space i think i'm now freed up to go and do that again which is great news because we have a lot of really good friends in europe we're still working in european projects and, and it, yeah it would be nice to to, to to play a role in that again I, I suspect the quantum might be a bit more difficult and, and just to add um, i noticed in the autumn statement from the government uh, a couple of weeks ago the just emphasizing the ambition to work with countries outside of europe as well so they have missions to to have closer collaborations with other key strategic quantum nations out there which might be the us japan canada etc australia i think i'm not clear whether those countries have been actually named or identified but i think that's also a really good thing and maybe you know brexit has helped us think a bit more broadly about about our strategic relationships yeah the announcement of the missions from the government was certainly good on the quantum program and yeah i think it's it feels like that it's a stronger sense of identity around this domain and it makes sense to what you're saying about Horizon. I didn't realise that quantum was more of a challenge. I think for two reasons. Firstly, it's security. Uh, doing any kind of security-led or motivated projects is going to be harder in a collaborative sense. And so I think the EU feel that that's an area that they, they need to protect. Then secondly, I think it's a potentially huge growth area. And so I think there's more care there. I think it would be the same with AI machine learning. So I think there's some topics where people are a bit more protective. Okay, yeah. So let's move on um, now to, as we're talking about the UK, let's talk about London. So I'm familiar with the London Quantum Secured Metro Network, which is an activity that's been going on a long time, I think, with BT and with some of the partners that you already mentioned. Why don't you walk us through that? So I think that's, it's quite an achievement. I'm keen to deep dive a little bit on what's been yeah. built and, and so on. It is an achievement. I'm really proud of it, actually, and, and for reasons that might not be immediately obvious. Uh, but yeah, I appreciate the chance to, to talk about the, the motivation. And, and it really comes from a few years ago, we, we built a point-to-point -point QKD net, uh, trial with a company called NCC in Bristol. It's point-to-point. -point. It connects two buildings in Bristol uh, using a BT uh, or an OpenReach product called OSA Filter Connect. Um, <clears throat> and, but it's just point-to-point. And, and that's great, but it begs the question, how would you scale this? How would you build something that connects multiple customers? Would you just connect them all on a point-by-point -point basis? Not really. If you had 10 customers, that implies probably 50 separate connections, and that's not a network. Very quickly, you come to the conclusion that what you need to do is architect a solution where you have access links from a customer into an exchange building, a BT exchange, and then you have to build like a, a quantum network that connects exchanges together where the the data coming from multiple customers is, is aggregated onto the same fiber link. And then you, you 
have a much better efficient way of using your QKD uh, equipment. What's happening is these, these QKD boxes are distributing keys uh, between nodes. Um, but you, really, you only really need uh, one QKD box at each end uh, of a system. And, and the QKD keys that are distributed can be shared and used for multiple customers on, on that link. Um, so that's a much more cost-effective, scalable way of, of building a network. It's just down in Bristol, we hadn't done that. Uh, and so we really were challenged. Uh, what would the architecture be when we move from point to network? And that's important. Uh, and that was largely untested at the time in terms of how do you manage the keys? How do you make sure the customers get the right keys? <laughs> how do you make sure when you start to aggregate that everything's still fine and still secure? Um, and then the second um, motivation was around um, the challenge, I guess, from the leaders in BT. How close is this to being commercial? You know, can you um, integrate your quantum uh, equipment into regular BT operations? Can, can you build a, a communications link that manages alarms and that sort of stuff? Can you just put it into regular BT exchanges so that it just looks like any other telecoms equipment? And it's fully integrated because that's what you need to do for this to take the next stage to commerciality. So, so the London trial was, was trying to do those two things, was build a network and show that QKD can scale. And secondly, integrate it into business as usual BT so that it, it's commercially ready for, um, so, so that we, we can then go to, go to the next stage. And that's really the trial in a nutshell there's obviously a lot more details but that they're the two motivations i guess the third one then is once we've done that can we get some customers uh, on board and actually look at some of the use cases that they might want to trial with this and, and the thing went live on uh, april 2022 uh, since then um, we've had uh, both ey and uh, hsbc uh, making use of it and uh, that's been really exciting we're, we're looking forward to to uh, having more customers on, on the trial not hundreds, but we have capacity to, to bring more on in, in a, in a um, controlled way over the next couple of years or so. And we expect it to run for another two years to give us all of the answers and the experience that we need on, on those various questions of how, how do you run a network, how do you manage it commercially, uh, and how do you make use or bring on stream customers with their specific use cases. Yeah, very interesting. And many questions on the top tip of my tongue. I guess, first of all, you mentioned sharing the fiber for multiple customers. Just trying to get a feel for what, which part of the architecture that, that is. So my understanding is it's a ring almost, or it is a ring, uh, perhaps a triangle, from the middle of London over to Slough. And then you're offering services into that core, if you like. Are you then... Switching multiple, you're giving a wavelength to every customer and then switching them over the network. So, multiplexing that way, or extremely good question. Essentially, there's an access and a core, or an access and a metro. So, the access is a dedicated link. Let's take HSBC. So, they have um, a dedicated fiber link um, from their uh, head office in Canary Wharf into um, a BT exchange. That is using uh, an OpenReach product called uh, OSA Filter Connect, uh, Optical Spectrum Access Filter Connect. It's a product you can buy, and its main intention is to use that product to deliver Ethernet to customers. It's used to do uh, 5G mid-haul, front-haul, back-haul as well. So, so it's, it's a very flexible access product 
where the fiber is divided into multiple wavelengths either eight or 16 wavelengths that you can essentially access via this open reach product and, and what you would do typically is plug some ethernet into one of those wavelengths or, or multiple of them what we've done in this um, trial is use one of those wavelengths to carry quantum to, to, to carry single photon um, key distribution and engineered the OSA filter connect to make sure that wavelength is protected and, and is well separated from the other much higher power wavelengths that are on the same fiber. Um, we've used other wavelengths to do the reconciliation, so the discussion between Alice and Bob at the two ends to establish the keys, that, that, that is separate from the quantum channel and that's sitting on other wavelengths. And then of course we're carrying the data as well. The, the data that's encrypted, the ethernet data, is on another one of those wavelengths, all on this fiber, this OSA filter connect fiber. And that is the, an integrated solution on a fiber to get you from your, your customer premise into a, a BT exchange building. That's the first leg. Uh, and then you do the same at the other end. So once you come out of another BT exchange, and in this case, it's going to Equinix Cloud, it's another OSA filter connect. And then the middle bit, the metro bit, is this ring or triangle that you described earlier where we have three nodes, two in London and one in Slough. These nodes are now managing the, the central bit differently. So here we take all of the 10G wavelengths coming in from different customers and we will separate those off and, and carry those on a fibre and then the keys will be handled differently. So those that data is encrypted already and it stays encrypted, but it's carried separately to, to the far end. Meanwhile, our Metro network, our core QKD boxes, what their job is essentially to carry the access keys. So what they are basically doing is, is aggregating all the keys coming in from all of these customers, putting them onto a, a QKD distribution, uh, whose job is literally just to carry those access keys to, to another node in our triangle. So think of it as, a, as an access uh, and a metro. Now, the access is dedicated to an individual customer and then the metro is there to, in an aggregated way, carry all of the keys for multiple customers and get it to the other end of, of our triangle. I, I, it's hard to describe without a diagram, but I hope that makes some kind of sense. Yeah, no, I'm cheating by looking at the diagram right now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you've got a QKD um, session, if you like, on every single link in the path. Um, are you then handing keys over from one to the other or doing some kind of, there's a word in cryptography for um, exchanging keys at a point and then extending the, the security somehow. I can't remember it. Uh, yeah. Where, so, where you end up with a, like a, like a daisy chain of connections at exactly. the end. So, <clears throat> yeah. Exactly. So the end, the, the key that, that is initiated in HSBC, that key will end up at the far end in the data center. So the, da the data that's encrypted at HSBC stays encrypted with that key, not decrypted anywhere until it reaches the far end. So, so what you have to do is get that key to the far end so it can decrypt. So that this key is, is encrypting our Ethernet data using AES-256, um, symmetric encryption. Um, and like I say, it stays encrypted. So you've got to get that key um, or t uh, across your Metro core network uh, and then off the, the final access leg to get to the far end so that it can decrypt that, that ethernet. And so your middle bit is carrying that key 
So that, that key is, is carried on a QKD key using an exclusive OR, for example. There's multiple ways of doing that, but essentially you're using those Metro QKD keys to carry your access QKD key uh, along with other QKD keys to, to deliver it to the fire end so that it can finally decrypt the Ethernet. And the keys that you are basically circulating around the Metro are there to be used in a one-time pad, a one-for-one basis to encrypt edge keys or, or access keys. That's it, thank you. One-time pad, that's what I was trying to remember. Yeah, yeah with a one-time pad, it, it's, it's important that um, you are doing the best you can there. But by having one QKD key per access QKD key, you are completely encrypting that key. And anybody trying to tap into that will have absolutely no idea what that final key will be. Indeed. Yes. So, yeah, it's, it's a neat solution to get the, the optical connections to end uh, secure. It's neat, and, and it comes down then to things like the key management system. So sitting over the top of all of this, you need some software, KMS, that, that schedules and orchestrates all of this and makes sure that the keys are in the right place at the right time. There's enough keys and that kind of thing. So KMS is becoming quite important to consider, both in our Metro trial, looking forwards, we're going to need them, potentially even globally, if, if we have satellite QKD connecting our trial to some another country, then there has to be some kind of KMS that sits across the whole thing, orchestrating that. And that, I think it's going to be a very interesting area of development. Yeah, a question on the KMS, of course, this is where the complexity of the solution is. And where I guess a higher focus of the security posture of that KMS needs to be taken into account, right? Yeah. You don't want the KMS to become a new attack vector, potentially. So it's a very important system. I guess I'm highlighting that it needs to be considered with a similar kind of level of security as the application. Yeah, basic things like you would want it to be separate um, from the QKD that it's managing. So, so that there's some a logical separacy between the two. Uh, also, there's, there's, there's ideas where you might, um, although the KMS is managing the keys, it doesn't actually see them. Um, so, so there's, and I'm not a security expert, but but there's ways of making sure that that separacy um, is implemented properly. So the, there's a limit to what the KMS can actually physically see. It might be managing, but it's not actually seeing things in the, in the clear. Got it. Yeah. What kind of challenges did you have in the implementation of this uh, network, if you don't mind me asking? I, I would say, first of all, you know, were there any issues around the Raman scattering or effects like that inside the optical fiber that prevented the quantum uh, signaling to work uh, or, or anything else that I haven't thought of? Yeah, let's go through the, at least what I think is from the most serious uh, and the, the one that hits you most is just the fiber itself. It's installed regular fiber that could be in the could have been in the ground for years. It can be high loss. It can have reflections. Reflections are a real problem. Reflections affect standard systems, and you have to be careful. But quantum systems are even more sensitive, and so you have to be careful with the installation and doing things like OTDR looking at that link before you put the quantum on to make sure there's, there's no huge reflections that are likely to cause problems. And just the, the performance of that optical link becomes more important uh, and more critical when you're building a quantum system over the top. So that's the first thing and a major issue for us. The second thing is if you are trying to coexist 
putting uh, classical and quantum on the same fiber, and we are, then um, th it's a question of filtering and a question of making sure that the uh, the classical signals are completely excluded from the quantum channel by careful design of filtering. And I think um, the, the trial itself is relatively modest in terms of distances. So things like Raman that you mentioned are still an issue, but not to the same extent that you might find systems where you're trying to put lots of classical channels so we're not if you wanted a full c bands worth of 100 gigabit channels carrying multiple terabits i think then over you know 30 40 50 kilometers then you're going to have bigger ramen problems than we're seeing but we we still have to be careful about ramen and in some <clears throat> places uh, make sure that the, the qkd keys are at a different wavelength maybe down at 1.3 microns, for example. So it's still a balancing act because 1.3 microns has higher loss than 1.5. The, the, the classic coexistence um, conundrum, really. You really want to put your keys where the loss is lowest, but that's where the classical data is. <laughs> and, and this then ultimately begs the question, should you do coexistence at all? And I suspect that in metro environments like ours, it's okay <clears throat> because the distances are just not so great that it's manageable. But I think ultimately, if you're trying to build national networks and where that national quantum network is going to be uh, supporting multiple classical secure systems, you would probably dedicate a fiber to it and make sure you do it properly and, and get it to work as well as it can. So and that's, that's just my feeling. But I, I think we will see less coexistence because it's just so challenging in, in, in those bigger ge geographies. Yeah, if you've answered my next question, ultimately it's going to be around the coexistence piece. It's, it's great to see it functioning well. Uh, but of course, it's, like I said at the beginning of the episode, a very sensitive, precise uh, process and uh, can be disturbed pretty easily like uh, many uh, other quantum technologies. Yeah, and I guess a supplier like BT, right? You've, you've got a lot of fibre, so there's many options on the table. Uh, you may even have fibre that's unused and and can productize in such a way that you use two fibers but still make it cost effective. Um, but if, if it's an access link into a customer, then you really want to maximize the use of that fiber. It's likely to be going just a few kilometers, and you can. But there are ways of engineering a coexistent solution with Ethernet and QKD, and it's only going a few kilometers, so that works fine. You really don't want to have to put lots of fibers into that customer because that's really expensive. Okay, that's great. So I'm familiar with OSA. As I said before we met today, I actually implemented one a long time ago in a different life. What are the details in terms of the performance that you get? And we've spoken about the configuration, but in terms of the throughput for, is throughput the best way to measure the quantum channel? Or is it more around the success rate of keys generated? Yeah, the number one characteristic is key rate. So how many keys are you getting through your fiber link per second? And keys would be measured in, usually measured in 256-bit blocks because that's what you need for an AES key. Yeah, that, that's the, the best measure of it. There's an open question about how many you need. So in an access link, you probably don't need that many because you're just using those keys to protect the, the single customer channel. And you might need a 256-bit key, which you might refresh every second or so. That that's not a very high key rate, and so, it, so it's fairly modest. So you need a, a few hundred bits per second to do that. In the metro side, it's different because 
you then potentially have dozens of customers all needing their keys carried. So they're all giving you hundreds of bits of key per second. So then you clearly need something much, much bigger there. And so there, I guess we're talking more kilobits or tens of kilobits even. Uh, and I'll try generating those sorts of levels. Okay, it's very dependent on the distance and the, the classical channels. And we've got some variability, but we're seeing high tens, hundreds of kilobits, um, megabits in some cases. So plenty of keys. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, so it's very healthy. There's a lot of headroom for, for even considering doing things like one-time pads. So, so you could even imagine for a, a particular use case, you might actually dedicate all of these keys to, to encrypt something that, that needs to be incredibly secret, like a, even a secret voice call or, or some secret financial trading or something where you could, if you really wanted to, portion those keys on a one-time pad basis. But generally, I think we're assuming that most applications will be implemented at AES 256, where we're essentially taking 256 keys and changing them every few seconds or so. Oh, it's that fast, the exchange rate, if you like, of yeah i don't know i don't think we're really clear how it whether it needs to be that quick there's some rule of thumb that says you should try to replace your aes key after about a terabit or a terabyte of data now clearly uh, 10 gigabits per second that's a uh, lots of seconds <laughs> 100 seconds or so or maybe more if it's terabytes yeah so, so so i think we're changing the keys probably way more often than we would need to but ultimately customers might want to upgrade to a 100 gig access link that's what we're seeing at the moment so there you would need to refresh more often uh, but but the technology is capable of doing that right so, so you, we can, as long as we can refresh of order seconds i think we're covered in terms of that that yardstick or that rule of thumb yeah and the encryption itself can be performed anywhere in the customer network right depending on the kind of infrastructure they've got at the end and that's really their prerogative I mean, we we are using the keys to encrypt Ethernet to carry customer data, but the, you know these keys could be made available at the application layer. They could be made available at the IP layer to do you know IPsec, MacSec. So, so there's different ways of using those keys from a customer's perspective to encrypt the net parts of the network that they really want to encrypt. The simplest thing for us is just to encrypt the entire stream coming out of a customer's communications room and just put it onto a 10 gig ethernet trail, but you don't have to do that. You can use ethernet encryptors, but you could feed it into at the IP layer or even the applications layer and encrypt email directly or something like that if you really want to. Right, so the, the encryptors you're using, doing it at the at layer two basically, which is yeah. a lot simpler and invisible to the customer. Yes, exactly. Okay, thank you. So let, let's move on to, uh, to some barriers for for QKD. It's a very advanced technology. It's fantastic to see it working and with real world use cases and providing assurance end to end connectivity across London. And we were seeing it in other cities and universities and so on. But what about barriers for QKD? So I would say cost is probably quite a high one in that you're adding this additional layer of devices to the infrastructure to carry keys. What other kind of barriers are there in the industry or in the market? that you think are worth highlighting it? Yeah, good question. Four or five, and in no particular order. Cost, clearly, and that's related to volume, and also related to the fact that the solution is hardware-based. So clearly it's going to cost. It's not just an algorithm. And we have a post-quantum algorithms that are being developed that will be 
presumably much cheaper. But QKD requires hardware. And at the moment, because the volume is very low in terms of sales from QKD vendors, it's expensive. I would expect that to drop, not to zero, but to drop to the point where it increments regular transmission by a percentage. In other words, you could buy a non-QKD protected link for X and you could buy a QKD protected link for X plus something percent. That something could be, I don't know. (laughs) I'm not going to say, but hopefully it's not going to be an order of magnitude more expensive. um, But but we're not there yet. Um, I I think volume will, will help significantly with that. Other barriers are around the immaturity of the technology. So customers just still not being aware of it. And we would like more customers on our trial. We'd like to expose that the whole technology better. And we're clearly in, in a phase of telling customers about that. Thirdly, the National Cybersecurity Centre, NCSC, have a, a white paper on their website that uh, it's negative, but, it, but it, it issues concerns or warnings about QKD and things that need to be put in place for it to be better welcomed by them. <laughs> And those concerns are around things like assurance. The, the idea of QKD is a very strong, it has a security proof, but you still need to implement it properly. And what we don't have currently in the UK is a, an accreditation process that essentially stamps a QKD box to say this has been built properly, that this has been built according to a sound design and it fulfills the the security proof requirements from the the theoretical perspective. And that accreditation or assurance process could be quite involved and and needs potentially an independent body to actually look at the box and say, and ask some basic questions and do some tests. So we don't have that yet. And that's, I I think, a barrier for sure and and needs needs to be resolved. So yeah, immaturity, lack of customer awareness, cost and then the the main regular regulator or security overse- overseer in the uk is not warmed up to qkd yet because of some of these issues i think it's probably the same reason why you've got that in the us as well that there's there's no recommendation for use of qkd in, in public sector customers domains yeah interesting about the assurance i guess there's a technical assurance and then there's also the manufacturing and proof that the, the technology is working as it should. I think one of the things behind that is standards, right? There isn't really any standardized way of doing QKD other than the mathematics behind it. There's a number of protocols which can be implemented, which achieve uh, different things, but ultimately you end up with with knowledge of the shared key on each end. Any thoughts on the standards domain and what's being done to stimulate that going forward? Yeah, lots of work. Etsy have been focused on QKD. I have a special QKD working group for a long time. ITU are starting to do work as well in the area. So, so standards are, are bodies and activities are in place and are developing the kinds of requirements that we need to standardise the assurance in this space. It, so that's good. I think different countries are going in different, slightly different directions, which... Uh, I guess is inevitable and we're not seeing the same restrictions that we've got in the US and the UK and other parts of the world, South Korea, Singapore, 
that are built, happily building QKD networks to do 5G backhaul, etc. So I, th- I think also when you look on, on the NCSC website, they talk about principles. So I think we're going to see a more principles-based approach where, whereby what you try to do is set some principles that this box has to conform to and then you test against those principles being met and that will make it a more transparent process for QKD to to find a way forward through, through, through this problem and standards clearly have a major role in defining what those principles are and, and that makes it a bit easier and a bit more agnostic because you're, you're right there are multiple QKD protocols and the main two, one, one around um, digital, if you like, single photon BB84 based, but the other one, CV or continuous variable QKD, which is uh, extremely uh, you know, popular now and getting a lot of interest among mainstream vendors, is a very different beast in terms of um, how you would check that it's actually um, doing what it should. It, it, it's a slightly harder thing to... to verify that it, that it's um, at the right um, security level because it's all based on having enough difference um, uh, in terms of noise threshold or, or, or the, the, the gap between the signal and the noise. Uh, it, it, so that's a slightly harder thing, to, I think, to, um, to work through. And it's certainly different than, than for DB-based QKD. So yeah, standards have a big part to play and they've been active for a long time, although they have been quite academic in over the previous years in their outlook, I think that's changing now and we're seeing much more pragmatic standards addressing this issue. And BT ourselves are involved actively in those standards, trying to make sure that we get to to something that is actually useful. Yeah, you mentioned uh, CV and DV. Of course, there's entanglement-based as well. As such, those three different methodologies are extremely different. And... Other than creating, it would be bad enough to have a standard for each of them and then have multiple standards bodies creating standards like they tend to do globally to create this uh, lattice of different standards for people to follow. I think it would just uh, not be very helpful to the industry. Uh, and also, with this is just a reflection on my behalf. You've got all these multiple layers. You mentioned the, the hardware. There's also the, the quantum technique that we mentioned. Uh, how are the... Um, qubits being sent across or is it entanglement to to then measure the entangled photons and then make conclusions from that these are the algorithms that are run across the UKD links some of those have been they're very well defined but again I guess as you say it's the implementation complexity which the standard bodies won't necessarily cover um, yeah interesting no, point about uh, principles th- th- yeah they won't. Just to be clear, we're not doing entanglement in our metro network. It's all entirely BB84. We are not at the stage of, of implementing entanglement. I think that still has a way to go. But yes, you're right. One of the it's another barrier in a sense is that vendors are quite protective over what they're built, how they're implementing, and for good reason. Otherwise, they'll just get copied. So, so the actual implementation and design of a BB84 or a cow or an entanglement-based protocol or whatever, CV, will be very bespoke, actually, because that's where the vendor can differentiate and actually quite protective. It, it is probably mm. not public how an, a, a vendor A is actually implementing QKD and they might not want it to be. And that's an issue because there has to be en- enough 
publicity behind what their implementation to make sure that it's accredited. So yeah, very interesting and difficult problem. And, and you don't want to force uh, vendors to make QKD in the same way because they need to differentiate because someone might differentiate on cost, someone might differentiate on performance, someone might differentiate on ability to integrate with classical equipment. Uh, and you want that and you want to encourage that. But at the same time, you need to have enough visibility of what they're doing to make sure that it's okay what they've built. Yeah. And I think it comes in different lenses, right? You've got the, is it, a, is the technology creating the keys as designed? What are the attack vectors? How's the key management supported? There's all these different things which can be certified. I'm not sure there's a single organization doing that yet. Uh, I don't know whether the, the Etsy standards are, uh, are covering the whole QKD um, stack, if you like, when it comes to how it could be accredited. Perhaps that's one for another episode. Uh, maybe if you could connect me with somebody in Etsy and be willing to talk, that would be good. Absolutely, uh, yeah. I, I'm sure they would love to talk about things like common criteria and principles-based approaches, etc. And what you, what areas, what aspects you can standardise and, and assure and accredit. You're right. It's a bit of a minefield. <laughs> I'm not an expert in it, but yeah, happy to put you in touch. Yeah, no, thanks for for talking to me about it. Um, also, you, know, you mentioned cost and the potential of using cryptography algorithms, which are running software. Where do you see the future market for QKD? There's some there's the ability to use quantum safe algorithms as it stands across links, and then to create keys, albeit with some additional exchanger information between endpoints, but still being quantum safe. For example, the Michaelis cryptography system provides keys in that way, which can be used for MACSEC and other types of encryption. So I guess that this these techniques will impact the, the future market for QKD. What are your thoughts on that? It will, for sure. Firstly, NIST is, as you probably know, currently working through post-quantum algorithm competition and is set to complete that next year. However, some people think, okay, that's, it's done and dusted. I heard someone say the other day, actually, that's just the starting gun. Once they've produced one or two algorithms that, that do a quantum-safe version of key distribution, then it, that needs to then be implemented and built and tested. And that's a multi-year project. And then it needs to be rolled out. Companies overturning or renewing, refreshing their key distribution infrastructure, that, that's not trivial. So, so yes, you're right. There is a question around PQC. That area is, has, still has a long way to go. But the, the kind of question that I think should be in people's minds is that's mathematically complex thing to break, but it's not information theoretically secure. It's just based on, on a complicated algorithm. What is your, as a, as a company now who's investing in, in security, what is your, uh, the, ch the chances that you're, or the probability that you're assigning to that PQC being broken? And if it's 0%, then that's a very strong claim, given that these things get broken quite regularly. And I'm not saying that these will, because they're clearly the best of the best. But there are a lot of people out there trying to break these codes for a living. If, if you're assuming there is a chance that, that these PQC codes are, are not completely safe, then doesn't that mean you should be looking at other, other techniques as well? And I know of some companies that would like to see multiple layers of security or protection and QKD for the, for the most um, secure requirements and data, I believe, should be in there. Now, whether you need it everywhere, I'm not so sure. And there might be places at the edge of the network 
like my smart meter in my garage probably doesn't need GKD on it. Um, but the integrated um, measurements of the whole nation's um, smart meters, including billing information, etc., probably does need protection. And, and so it's horses for courses. And at the very edge of the network, I, I, I guess QKD is overkill. And a PQC algorithm is fine. But I think in the centre of the network, you probably want to do the best you possibly can and, and uh, make sure that you, you've taken all precautions to protect your data. Yeah, very well put. It comes back to risk management, doesn't it, doesn't it really? Yeah. Um, assessing the risk, assessing the likelihood, uh, assessing the threats. And then defence in depth, you mentioned, is a common approach. And yeah, I, I guess QKD is another tool in the toolbox um, when it comes to looking at what that, what that looks like for your organisation. Yeah, sometimes these things are, are pictured as either ors, and I don't think anybody in our community sees them like that. So I would fully expect PQC to be sitting there working alongside QKD anyway. Uh, in any case, PQC will be probably part of an authentication algorithm to get any QKD system up and running. So you need it there in that case. But I, I can't see why you wouldn't have it sitting there alongside QKD. There's NCSC say that's important anyway, and, and I think they're right to say that. Brilliant. Thank you, Andrew. I've uh, just got a couple more questions to, before we wrap up. One around uh, boosting QKD. Maybe this is like a roadmap type thing for, for you and BT. In terms of, you, we mentioned longer haul fiber. What about things like proxy re-encryption I was reading about? There's packetization uh, and you mentioned satellite photonic sources. That's really interesting uh, domain there. Is this areas that you're looking and uh, what can you share with us? Uh, yeah, we've done some recent trials with Juniper, actually, looking at how to integrate keys into the IP domain. There hasn't been much, too much work in that area, but I don't think it's not rocket science, but it's certainly, we, we are uh, a supplier of IP networks. And so our customers, m many of them are multinationals running their own uh, IP networks. So, so that's a layer where I think QKD encryption um, could play a part but only if it has a global reach so that Im immediately makes you think of satellites and there uh, we're seeing a lot of progress we're expecting some early missions next year but certainly by 25 2025 we would expect to see some satellite missions starting to fly and we have a lot of connections and interest with those that for us uh, really enhances QKD's capability uh, and, and removes the objection that it's, it's very geographically localised. Uh, and, and then the interesting question then is, what is the, I guess, the balance between terrestrial and satellite? On the one hand, you might imagine satellite is just there to connect countries, but in-country in is entirely terrestrial. On the other hand, you might say, no, I'm going to have multiple satellite ground stations in each country. And the satellite is perfectly capable of delivering some of those long haul links within the country as well. Yeah, thank you. And finally, future plans for quantum in the UK or personally, uh, anything you'd like to share? Um, just to pique yeah. the interest of people uh, listening, maybe conferences or, or activity that you're going to be involved in going forward. Yeah, I, I, we have been very, in, in BT, very focused on building this trial. And that's taken a lot of our energies. We are now, we have that up and running. It's very mature. And so we get, we're looking to the future now. We're excited by the uh, autumn statement and we see a new phase of quantum. There will be a new phase, phase three of the quantum hubs launched next year. And we 
plan to be involved in those, whichever ones are successful, good luck to them all. And for us, that means getting involved in next generation quantum, quantum entanglement networks. We are helping in a project called the Quantum Data Center of the Future with companies like Orca leading it, where we think ultimately quantum comms networks will connect quantum computers and produce something that, that people tend to talk about as the quantum internet. We don't, I don't really know even what that means, let alone like the phrase. But for us, embracing the kinds of things that would be needed, like quantum memories, quantum repeaters, quantum entanglement, is, is where we're heading next. And um, I'm one of the um, subcommittee members of the quantum track at OFC, the Optical Fibre Communications Conference in San Diego next year in March. So I've just had the, the privilege of helping the committee review all the submissions, the quantum submissions into that conference, of which there were many. And the, the successful papers w- will not be announced until next week or the week after. But So I can't say, <laughs> I can't talk about it. But I was really excited by the, the quality and the range of submissions, which seems to me to have taken off. It feels like we're entering into a, a new era of quantum comms where all kinds of um, companies and academic groups are doing research, which wasn't the case four or five years ago. So that conference should be really interesting. And I'm actually helping lead a workshop at the conference, which is asking a really uh, basic question. Uh, and the question is this, what do what does the house think? <laughs> do we believe that, that quantum is all about QKD and that's all you need? Or do we believe that actually QKD is a bit of a red herring and what we really want to do is build a quantum internet? Or finally, do we think that actually to get to a quantum internet, we need to dip our toe in the water and start to build very pragmatic QKD networks now, because that's the only way to build experience. So that's going to be a workshop in San Diego at OFC. So please come along and let's have a lively debate. (laughs) Sounds great. I'll uh, look out for my uh, ticket in my email. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that that is a very interesting topic. QKD is the only active use case, really, of the quantum network at the moment. But of course, there are many others. And that's, yeah, love to see the results of that. I was privileged last week to be one of the external examiners for a PhD Viva down in Bristol. Uh, Dr. Marcus Clark, congratulations to you (laughs) uh, if he's listening. (laughs) So that was, uh, and I mentioned it because his PhD was all about this quantum internet and in in Bristol they have, I think it's 19 or more nodes connected together using entanglement. Uh, Hero experiment, phenomenal piece of work that that Marcus and and the team have done down there. It it shows you what's possible. Really amazing how much how quickly things are progressing so although qkd is where it's at the moment that's going to change quite quickly yeah it's an exciting domain absolutely agree with you let me wrap it up then thank you very much for coming to speak to me I've learned a lot and best of luck with all the endeavors that you mentioned and we'll talk again at some point thank you andrew thank you very much nice to talk to you thank you cheers like to take this moment to thank you for listening to the podcast. Quantum networking is such a broad domain, especially considering the breadth of quantum physics and quantum computing, all as an undercurrent, easily to get sucked into. So much is still in the research realm, uh, which can make it really tough for a curious IT guy to know where to start. So hit subscribe or follow me on your podcast platform, and I'll do my best to bring you more prevalent topics in the world of quantum networking. 
spread the word. It would really help us out.